All right, so Romans 9. I'm going to read starting at verse 1. Before I start reading, let me remind you of a couple of things from the review. So, on your handout. In the beginning of Romans, we have the doctrine of authority. We have Paul asserting his apostleship and the idea that he has a mission to take the word to the ends of the earth, to the nations, right? So the doxological focus, the idea that we are focused on the doxa, the glory of God, and that our lives should be focused on glorifying God. So he has the thesis there that he's writing about. So this whole book is in order to defend this mission and explain the mission in such a way that people understand the glory of God that Paul is explaining throughout the earth. Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So rather than being ashamed of the gospel, he glories in it. He glories in it because it's the only rational thing to believe. And he defends that and explains that. Then, He talks about the power of God, that God uses the gospel to save people. And so the preaching of the gospel causes people to be saved as they believe the gospel, and that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is true for the Jew, who are the covenant nation, and also for the Greek, a nation that is a part of the Gentiles, and they're used to represent the whole, all of the Gentiles. And so now he's explaining that we're there in Romans 9. But in verse 17 it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So it's revealed from the objective faith given once to the saints. And it's revealed to the individual person having faith. And so the idea that God takes the objective revelation and causes it to be understood by the individual. And so... Then he gives us the objective revelation out of Habakkuk 2, right? As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this idea that you have justice through the imputed, by the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that's through the instrument of faith. And so you have life by faith. You are just, and you have life by faith. And so then we have, in the rest of the book, we are going through, we get to this idea that in, verses, in chapters 1 and three, to 3, the righteousness of God in terms of being a righteous judge and then also the righteousness of his law is discussed. Chapters 3 to 5, we talk about the idea of us receiving the righteousness of Christ externally by imputation. It's a credit. It's accounted to us. Uh, then in chapters 6 through 8, the idea that we are transformed after the image of Christ. We're sanctified. There's an imparting of the righteousness of God in sanctification as we internally are made to understand and believe more and more. And then, in chapter 9, we start to deal with the righteousness of God in predestination. His plan is righteous. And so, His means are righteous, and His end is righteous. And we're going to get, we're transitioning now, at the end of Romans 9, into a discussion of the reality that this involves the nations being brought subject. So the righteousness of God is going to be displayed, revealed in the nations as the law is adopted more and more. And so the will of God is done in earth as it is in heaven more and more by degrees as the gospel goes forth. 
And so we see that being done, and that's going to be discussed. And then it moves to the idea of the individual and sanctification in more detail. These are the means we use to accomplish that goal. Okay, so there's, that's, again, where we're going. So we get into Romans 9 and this bridge on the righteousness of God in predestination and the righteousness of God in the nations. So let's read Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. And her beloved who was not beloved. 
And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. And we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. So let's analyze the text. We see, when we get to verse 25, we start to have this list of quotes. So we we got through 24 last time. So we'll be examining from 25 to 33. The What's happening here in this bridge, I have at the top of page two, uh, an underlined, bolded kind of explanation of what's going to be explained. Okay, it says, Israel rejected as visible church and body politic for unbelief. Okay, so Israel is rejected as a body politic, as a, as a nation, as a state, and it's rejected as a visible church. Why? Because of unbelief. There are elect individuals that are a part of Israel, that are not rejected. Why? Because they have faith. They've been given faith by God. The nations are going to be brought into the kingdom as many individuals are given faith, and as a result, national churches are formed and body politics are reformed. Sorry, I should say bodies politic. Bodies politic are reformed to submit to and acknowledge Christ as the King of Kings. So, verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. All right, so this is pulled out of Hosea. Verse 25 is from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and verse 26 is from Hosea 1.10. So this idea that God will call some people his people who were not his people. What is this talking about? In the new administration of the covenant of grace, the new covenant, God will call nations as nations to be his people 
as national bodies politic. These will be nations that were previously excluded. Now, the actual context, by the way, is Hosea is talking about how the northern ten tribes of Israel have been put away, and they're going to be brought in again. That hasn't happened yet. And what Paul does is he says, what Hosea is talking about here for the northern ten tribes, they are like Gentile nations at that point. They've already been conquered, enslaved, and they're pagan. So they're like the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, the Gentiles are going to be brought in in the same way as the northern ten tribes will be brought back in. Now, these nations will include nations that are not the Hebrews, even though in the old administration of the covenant of grace, the old covenant, God had formed a covenant with the national body politic of the Israelites in a special way. Now, think about this for a second. Some people want to say that God only formed a covenant with them as a national body politic. The Noahic covenant is a covenant with every nation, that every nation should have magistrates that are godly, who punish evil and not righteousness. The Noahic covenant is a covenant with every nation. There's a duty of every nation to punish evil and to not punish good. The civil magistrate is given the sword in every nation by God. And so, we cannot say that there has been no covenant made with the whole race of man in terms of their states, their national body politic. God already made that. But he made a special covenant with Israel in terms of the way their state was to be organized. Now, point four, God will call nations beloved who had not previously received the signs of love. So let's consider, what was Hosea saying? What is Paul saying? Is, was Hosea saying, was Paul saying that God is going to love individuals that he previously did not love? Do God's compassions change? Do his attitudes change? Right, we talked about this last time. I do not, and we'll go back to that. But he is not talking about the idea that there are individuals who were not loved who will become beloved. Remember, he's answering the concern about has God broken his promise to Israel? So, these signs of love are listed for us back in Romans 9, verse 4. The adoption, the glory, the covenant, law, worship, and the promises. God will give those nations, the nations outside of Israel, the new covenant signs of love. They'll call them sons. Now, we think about the doctrine of adoption. We think about the doctrine of adoption in terms of, well, when you're justified, you're adopted. But if we're talking about adoption in the same way, back in verse 4, then what Paul would be saying is, look, God adopted 
every Israelite. And that would mean that he justified every Israelite. So we must be talking about a different adoption. This adoption is an adoption that deals with promises that are given, that are conditional to a national body and to visible churches. Now, the adoption that we receive, having been given faith, the conditions are fulfilled by Christ. And the same is true of this corporate adoption. But we need to understand that this corporate adoption is something that is distinct from us being adopted individually. It's an external thing. In the same way that someone can be baptized but not actually believe, you have people who are able to be brought into this covenant law order in nations and invisible churches, right? and they are not justified. They don't have faith. So God will give the nations the new covenant signs of love, calling them sons. The adoption is the same as being called sons. And it's used here to represent the whole set of things. They're, they're going to have the glory of you know, we, the glory of the old covenant was bound to one nation, Israel, but the beauty and holiness of and the glory of the external administration of the new covenant extends to all nations. The covenants all apply to every nation in the new administration of the covenant of grace. Old covenants are not annulled by new covenants. New covenants build on old covenants. Okay, so Paul says that explicitly in Galatians. He says that the giving of the law at Sinai did not annul the promise of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, given to Abraham. And so he says that's even true with human covenants. New additions don't annul the old. The law, including the common law, the general equity of the civil law, is given to all the nations. And our own confession, the Westminster Confession, talks about how the judicial laws given to Israel are no longer obligatory, except insofar as there are principles that are, in other words, that there's a, that's a general equity. General equity. General refers to common, okay? And the equity there is talking about this idea of the justice that would be common across nations. So the term common law relates to the term general equity. So the common law in, in English history, common law is an effort to take principles out of the Bible and restrain the British government from tyranny. And so the Puritans became very well known as judges in local courts in Britain and at restraining the power of the crown by asserting common law, law that's common to all nations, saying the Bible has principles that limit the, the crown's authority. And so you read their cases, you read the case law that the Puritans have, and the citations are principally judicial laws and principles drawn out of it. And so you see Paul reasoning in the same way. He argues that ministers ought to be uh, rewarded for their work when they teach, and he appeals to the idea that the, there's the Levitical law that you ought not to muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. That's the argument he makes. He's pulling out a principle out of these old laws. So, 
the common law is given out to all the nations. Worship, according to the new covenant, goes to all the nations. And the promises of the covenant of grace go to all the nations. So this text is about corporate groups first as a discussion of outward signs of love. And those signs have effects on individuals who live in covenant succession. Okay, so covenants of our forebearers have a bearing on us. We have inherited a national covenant. Our constitution is a national covenant. Okay, officers swear to uphold the national covenant when they enter office. And so we have certain benefits there. Our own constitution references the common law. It refers to the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So we have an acknowledging in our national covenant of the Christian religion without the establishment of a church. But it has, in the founding covenant, there is reference to Christianity and the idea that Christianity is the source of our rights, that we get them from God, is of course acknowledged in our founding charter, the Declaration of Independence. Now, it should be more explicit, but that's a part of what we have received and inherited. And so we can see some degree to which this has occurred here in our own nation. And we see being torn away those elements of public Christianity that do exist more and more by opposition. So, Earlier on, we talked about the text that said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Paul was using that to refer to the individuals principally in his line of argument. But he was quoting from Malachi 1, which was focusing on the nations. And so what Paul is trying to do is to show, look, there's a relationship of the national groups and of the individuals that needs to be understood. And so he's engaging about both things. Now, remember, hatred and love are mutually exclusive categories. We talked about this, and we talked about how Ecclesiastes chapter 3 has a list of mutually exclusive things, and it lists hatred and love side by side. And those are, you know, there's a time to hate and a time to love. Those are mutually exclusive. So Israel and Judah are both shown to have been cursed, they have signs of, of hatred, as corporate groups. Israel was destroyed and not reformed, the northern tribes. And we have Judah and Benjamin and a portion of the Levites in the south. And at the time that Paul is writing in the book of Romans, he is talking about the idea that the Jews have rejected Christ and they're awaiting a judgment. So there's a judgment that occurs earlier with the destruction of Jerusalem back in 586, 587 B.C. And then what we have is we are awaiting, at the time of the writing of Romans, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So in Israel and Judah, some individuals were spared. Some individuals are a remnant. They have the reality of love, even though the signs of hatred are on them. And even though other nations did not have the signs of love, there were people saved out of them. Think about Nineveh, for example. You have a large number of people being saved out of Nineveh. Not a Jewish nation, not Israel. 
Right? Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches there. The most like half-hearted, short preaching ever. Right? Literally eaten by a fish trying to get away from it. Right? This, this half-hearted preaching is done, and there's a lot of people saved there. It causes a national repentance, and God doesn't bring outward curse on them. So we, we've seen individuals be saved before outside of Israel. But the idea of nations being brought into this external covenant is what's changing, and the external covenant is being taken away from the national group of Israel or Judah. So this text is talking about the external covenantal adoption of the nations, which will both be caused by and will result in the salvation of many individuals. Right? Think about that. A nation will not covenant with God unless a large number of individuals are persuaded to do so. And when that happens, the law order influences people. And many more convert in that context. And many more are born into that context. So across generations in America, a public Christianity, a broad acceptance of Christianity the predominance of Protestantism in the land had the result of many people being born into churches, being baptized, hearing the word preached as they grew up, the idea that they went to ministers when they had problems as opposed to psychotherapists, the idea that they would seek counsel from people who were wise in the church to deal with disputes as opposed to going to the public courts. And so these are things that are that were significant in the life of America that are a part of that covenant succession that occurred. And many people were saved in that context. Now, again, God's attitudes do not change. So when we talk about a people going from being loved to unloved or unloved to loved, Let's meditate on this deeply. Love and hatred are mutually exclusive categories. Right? Point 11. We've got A through, like, I don't know, ZZ or something. So, go with me. All right. Love and hatred are mutually exclusive categories. Everyone is someone whom God either hates or loves. God does not have contradictory attitudes or desires. Everyone whom he loves, he does not hate. Everyone whom he hates, he does not love. God does not love everyone. God does not hate everyone. So God's love is his desire for the good, the well-being of the object. God's hatred is his desire for the evil, the harm of the object. Right? God is not seeking the devil's good. God is not seeking the devil's good. Huh. So love is favor. Love is an attitude of the mind. Yeah, you favor somebody, you love somebody, you're designing the good of the object. Favor is love, is what that should say. So, if you favor somebody, you're, you're desiring their good. So, grace is a subcategory of favor. Grace is a subcategory of favor. Grace is, it's unmerited favor, right? We talked about that. But it's more than unmerited. It's not just an innocent person getting favor. It's demerited favor. It's favor that we not only haven't earned, but in fact we've earned the opposite of. Right? Think about mercy. You can't get mercy if you're innocent. You get mercy when you are guilty. Okay? So we think about this. Grace 
is the desire for the good of the object out of mercy, not out of the merit of the object. Grace is a merciful love rather than a merited love. So grace is not common. Grace is particular. It's specific. God does not love all persons. God loves the righteous angels for their merit. God loves Christ and the Holy Spirit because of their own merit. God loves elect humans out of mercy, not out of their own merit. So there was a discussion a little bit last time about what would be a useful way of referring to this idea. If, there's, if, if common grace is, is, is a trip-up kind of phrase that suggests the idea that, okay, is God gracious towards everybody? I think the idea of apparent blessings is more clear. Um, the... Uh, the idea of sign blessings, right? the idea of a sign of love, a sign of blessing, a sign of grace. But the sign and the reality are not identical. Right? The Lord's Supper is not Jesus Christ. Right? The bread isn't actually his body. And the wine isn't actually his blood. They're signs. The sign is not the reality. And the reality is not the sign. So the things we sometimes hear people call common grace, I think it's a confusing phrase. And it, it creates problems of misunderstanding that make it so that people think that God is gracious to everybody. And some people use it that way. I think most people who use the term common grace are saying that God loves everybody and he gives them the rain and the sunshine uh, out of love towards them all. And that the preaching of the gospel, God desires that everybody would believe it and he loves them, but he doesn't accomplish what he wants. Right? That's, that's the false doctrine that I think is broadly taught. And so we need to oppose that. And so I think... In light of how that term gets used, I would encourage sign blessings, uh, signs of blessing, or apparent blessing as a way of referring to that. And so, only if someone has faith do they know that those are actually blessings to them. So, when we talk about the idea of God loving someone who is not beloved, we're talking about the national group, and we're talking about the idea of the switching of where the signs are. God's giving the signs no longer to Israel, but he's now giving the signs to the Gentiles. So God provides the merit of Christ to the elect. Right? We, we, we don't have our own merit whereby we can get the favor of God. God provides the merit of Christ to the elect in order that his love of the elect will be just rather than unjust. He gives the merit of Christ to us so that his mercy is a just mercy. So by this method, God is both just and merciful. And the problem he's resolving there, right? God reveals in his law, and it reveals in the book of Proverbs, the idea that it is an abomination to justify the wicked or to condemn the innocent. So Christ volunteers to be condemned in our place, taking our guilt. And his volunteering to do that is what makes that not an abomination. And then his righteousness being given to us is what makes it so that God's justifying of us. Right? His, our wickedness being taken by Christ and being paid for and Christ's righteousness being imputed to us so that we are righteous, we are no longer wicked under the law. 
And so, God does not commit the abomination of justifying the wicked. He calls us righteous because we are under the law righteous. It has been credited to us, imputed to us. So he can be merciful and just. So, sometimes the Bible uses words that talk about the reality, like love or grace, that talk about the signs or Words that talk about the signs sometimes refer to the reality. So in our language, it's our duty to become increasingly clear and to avoid confusing language. So when we do with systematics, systematic theology, it's our duty to organize things and to explain these things that are hard to understand. So God has given to us a text that is understandable. It is clear. We must compare Scripture with Scripture. But, if you read a passage without paying attention to the context in the narrow form of the grammar, or the context of the book, or the context of the system of the whole, you can twist things to your own destruction. So it's important to read the whole Bible, to study the whole Bible, and to spend your life growing in the knowledge of Scripture. God has the right to set out a riddle. He has the right to set out a riddle. He has the right to lay things out and make it harder for us to understand rather than giving us the plain, simplest possible language. But it would be a sin for me to get up here and just give you riddle after riddle from the pulpit. I would be doing something that God has a right to do, but I don't. It's my job, my commissioning, to make plain the harder things to understand. And so... Proverbs 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. I did that last time. I want to emphasize that. Our job in exercising dominion is, in part, to search out and to make plain. To search out and to make plain. All right. So, this carries on into verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So this is explaining. So before, the Hosea text helps to show, look, there are nations that did not have the signs of love, and now they're going to receive the signs of love. And there are nations that were not covenanted with God, they were not his people, and they will covenant with God. They will become his people. They will be called sons of God. They will have an adoption, an external adoption. So now Isaiah is laying out something else. Paul says, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So the other one shows, look, Gentiles will be brought in. The Isaiah text shows not everybody who's in the external covenant is somebody who's actually saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. This is the part that most preachers just pass over real quick. That verse. Okay? So what is it talking about? Finishing the work. What's finishing the work? The finishing of the work here is finishing the work of the Old Covenant and the work of judgment on the Old Covenant people. He's going to cut that work short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And that word earth, it's too bad it's translated that way. It's just a Hebrew word for land. Arats. It's just land. It's talking about 
the promised land. Talking about the Jews. So this work that's being done, this cutting short, this, this cutting short in righteousness is the judgment that Daniel prophesies in Daniel 9. Right? So you remember in Daniel in chapter 9, the context is Judah has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And then many of the Jews were enslaved and taken to Babylon. And so Daniel is there, and he's praying that God would have mercy, that he would rebuild the temple. And an angel comes to Daniel and says, that's going to happen. And he says, but then that temple that hasn't been built yet is going to be destroyed. When the Messiah comes, and when the revelation is complete, and there'll be an end to the offering of sacrifices. That happened in 70 AD. It happened. It hadn't happened yet when Paul was writing Romans. But he's explaining that's going to happen. So in the context of the Hosea verse, we're talking about the external signs of love. And here we're talking about the external signs of hate. Curse. Remember back to the Malachi text, talk about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Then Paul applied it to the individuals. But he was also quoting from Malachi, which was talking about the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel. And in Malachi, it said, you know, how have I hated Edom? Well, I, I tear down their works and leave their cities a wilderness. Well, that then happens to the Jews in 70 AD. So this sign of hatred, does this mean that God hates all the Jews now? Has he changed his mind? So, in verse 29, it talks about a seed that was left as a remnant. And so there it shows, no, God loves individuals. There are individual Jews that God loves. What about Paul? Isn't Paul a Jew? So, there's this idea that God's not changing the individuals whom he loves, but there is a way he's dealing with covenant nations, nations, bodies, politic. So, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, even though there's a ton of people that after the flesh or according to their national citizenship or even their visible church status are Israel, some of them are going to be saved. A remnant will be saved. And then there'll be this judgment. Now, the ones who are the remnant, in the book of Acts, we see the, the Jews that convert to Christianity, they, they accept the new covenant. Don't convert. They're already believers, and they continue to believe. They believe Moses. They believe Jesus. They do believe Jesus because they believe Moses. Some of them get converted, like Paul. And so, then, what you have is there's a persecution in Jerusalem, and many of them flee. There's a scattering of the church. And Jesus warned them at the Olivet Discourse, like Matthew 24. He says, "When you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee." So you know what happened in history? Roman armies came. They surround Jerusalem, and then the emperor dies, and the army leaves the field. They stop surrounding Jerusalem, and the Christians flee Jerusalem. And then the army comes back, and they destroy Jerusalem. They were able to actually, within the generation of Jesus, they were able to flee Jerusalem. They saw the sign of an army surrounding Jerusalem, and they fled. 
So, what we have is God saving a remnant of the Jews, even when there's a bringing of judgment on the Jews for rejecting Christ. And we're going to see later on that the nation of the Jews is brought back in. I keep referencing that. It's in Romans 11. A branch being put back onto the tree, being grafted back on. So, though the number of persons who are natural descendants of the flesh of Israel and the members of the body politic and members of the visible church be a huge number, the elect who are given faith and preserved by God will be saved. Point 14. For God will finish the work of the Old Covenant and cut it short in righteousness. God will bring judgment to bring about a sudden end of the Old Covenant. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth, the judgment will take place on the land. Jerusalem is judged twice with the destruction of the city and the temple. But Daniel 9 points to the one that ends at 70 AD, the one that Paul is talking about that he's waiting for. All right, so verse 29. As Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, literally hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Destroyed, toast, everybody's dead. Lot and his family are taken out. The wife looks back, becomes a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters survive. They are pulled out when the judgment is coming. Now, with the destruction of Jerusalem, God will preserve some Israelites and will cause many elect Jews to flee the city as happened in Acts and was commanded by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Okay. Had God not caused this preservation by scattering the New Covenant Church in the first two decades of the death, after the death of Christ and by giving a warning to the believers in Jerusalem to flee at the sight of armies around the city, then the Jews would have been annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. So, what shall we say then? Verse 30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. <laughs> As it is written, <coughs> as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. How do we make sense of all of this? The Gentiles did not seek righteousness, but they have attained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes through the instrumentality of faith. Right? So, they have the imputed righteousness of Christ. They're given the gift of faith. They were in darkness. They're brought into light. They weren't seeking it, but the power of the Holy Spirit caused them to believe the word. And so by the instrumentality of faith, they have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Israel sought righteousness through the instrumentality of personal and group law-keeping and has thus not attained righteousness. This is an illegal use of the law. Since the fall, we cannot use the law to be right with God. It's an illegal use of the law. You go and plead your works to God, He will say, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. That's an illegal use of the law. Why did Israel not attain righteousness? Because they didn't seek the righteousness that is by grace through faith. 
but they sought a righteousness by works, by merit through works. Jesus is the stumbling stone that's talked about. He is the rock of offense. And the word translated offense there is scandalu. Scandal. These doctrines that we are talking about are a scandal to the world and frankly to most of those who call themselves the church. The doctrine of the sovereignty of the grace of God is a scandal to the church. That there is, there's, there's, It's offensive. The idea that God chooses whom to save and not to save, that he makes people for a purpose and fulfills that purpose, it is offensive. The idea that the Jews receive judgment for rejecting Christ is offensive. You, you talk about that, you'll be called a racist. Right? Say, you know, the Jews receive judgment because they rejected Jesus Christ. Call you a racist. Okay, well, what if I say every other nation was under judgment for all of history before that? Does that make me a racist too? What if I say the Jews are going to be brought back in? Does that make me a racist too? The doctrine that Christ is king over the nations in a way that actually has any implications of what we should do is a scandal. If I tell you we shouldn't kill babies because it's an offense to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a scandal. The church doesn't have the courage to just say that. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Stop murdering babies. Equal application of the laws. Give babies protection under law. You swore to uphold the Constitution. Have you read the 14th Amendment? That the federal government is going to stop states from taking away the legal protection of persons and taking away their rights of life, liberty, or property. There are 60 million babies who have not had the equal protection of the law since the 14th Amendment was put into place. This is a scandal. The doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. But what if a person murders somebody? Yeah, Paul was a murderer. Well, what about adultery? I mean, David was a, an adulterer. And a murderer, by the way. Justification, being declared righteous, being called righteous. Being, God saying you, you, yes, you, you're righteous. God saying that about the individual, by grace, not merit, through faith, not works. It's a scandal. If nobody calls you an antinomian, a lawless one, for what you say about the gospel, probably not being clear enough. And when you teach people the duties they have under the kingship of Christ, if they don't call you a legalist, you're probably not being clear enough. And I'm not saying that you should be a legalist in the sense of inventing human laws. I'm not saying that you should teach the doctrine of justification by keeping the law. But if by legalist they mean 
you want to impose God's law and say that that's the difference between what's good and what's evil? Amen. And if they say the idea that you think that people are justified apart from keeping the law and so therefore you're lawless, amen. This chapter is filled with scandalous doctrines. And so that's why Paul starts by telling us to not be ashamed. Because this book is full of doctrines that the world will hate and those who call themselves religious will hate. And so we need to be ready to see the glory of these things. The way in which it appears scandalous is meant to make it so that it is clear, so that God is glorified, so that the clarity of these things, the sharp contrast with the darkness, that brings glory to God. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Those are the floor rights. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to be clear about the gospel and about the law, that we would not be afraid to plainly speak the word, that we would not be afraid of the doctrine of grace or justification by faith alone. We ask, Father, that you would help us to be boasters in your truth, that we who glory let us glory in this, that we know and understand you. We ask that you would help us to speak sound patterns of words, to put off less clear ways of speaking, but to lay things out plainly and clearly in an orderly way to help people to understand that we would be known for having wisdom, that people would be drawn to your word, that they would cry out for the rule of your Son, Jesus Christ, that our nation would covenant more clearly, more plainly, to acknowledge Christ and the authority of his word, we would see biblical justice administered and Christian liberty preserved. We ask that you would remove wicked magistrates and that you would give us godly magistrates. We ask that you would remove wicked ministers in the churches and put into place godly ones. That we would see this local church grow and unify with others as we grow in the unity of the truth. That we would work together and that we would see this land subdued. That we would see evil subdued and wilderness subdued. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.